0: Welcome to part two of Herbert smith Freehills' Revolution or Evolution podcast series where we look at technology and the changing dispute resolution landscape. I'm Martin Heavey, a senior associate in Herbert smith Freehills London IT and TMT dispute practice and UK co-leader of the Firms Digital Law Group. I'm joined by Rachel Lydgate, a partner in Firms Dispute Resolution division who's experienced in acting for clients in complex IT outsourcing and digital transformation disputes, and Jeremy Purton, a senior associate in the firm's TMT team with a focus on large, complex or novel technology and outsourcing transactions. In part one of this podcast, we discussed the types of disputes that we commonly see in relation to outsourced IT service arrangements and transformation projects. Today we'll be discussing how to mitigate those risks. By way of a refresher, in the first part of this podcast series we highlighted some key themes as to how disputes might arise, including in relation to requirements or dependencies the application of change control mechanisms and changes in scope. It strikes me that those issues can arise at different stages in an engagement between the parties. What then can be done at the outset to reduce the risk of disputes on
1: a project? Thanks, Martin. I I think many of the risks and issues that give rise to disputes during the life of the contract first have their seeds sown before contracts are even signed. I think there are two main areas where lawyers and their clients can have really productive discussions and i think these also work really well as a a framework for thinking about uh, the relationship between a supplier and a customer and getting that right from the outset now the first of these is to make sure that the contract that you're choosing to use to document a given relationship between a supplier and and a customer actually fits the project or the service that you're looking at purchasing or supplying, depending on which which side you're coming at this from. Really, this is about knowing what you need if you're a customer. And if you're a supplier, it's about understanding what the customer's requirements are. For us lawyers, that often starts with a discussion of what are your requirements? Who needs to do what to deliver things? How does everything fit together? And really what we're driving at there is Picking the right starting point for any contract. That could be looking at a template and saying, if I use a certain type of uh, form of contract to supply services, or if I'm a customer who is used to working off a particular in-house document or form for contracting, have I actually got the right template? There's a certain risk, I think, of people being template blind in the sense that There may be a a strong preference to begin with a certain starting point, but actually when you dig a little deeper and ask more questions, understand what you want, it can become clear that maybe that wasn't the right template or that wasn't the right starting point. In those situations, I think it's really healthy and really productive for customers and suppliers to sit down and, and have an honest conversation about whether or not we are working from the right set of terms and whether the choices we're making around rights and remedies in a contract, processes, delays, dates, milestones, are in fact fit for the purpose that they're being applied to in in any given context. And I think that takes us to another related point, which is really a, a lot of getting technology transformation contracts right, a lot of structuring sourcing programs well, comes down to collaborative working between all stakeholders the best contracts will not emerge from siloed working, whether that's to do with internal divisions between the business, between legal, between finance, or whether it's to do with one side, customer or supplier, owning too much of a document or too much of a discussion. These are points that I'm sure many listeners have heard mentioned before, collaborative working, getting your documents right. But I think it's, it's really important to emphasise those from the outset. And that really flows into making sure that rights and remedies that you might be selecting under a contract are relevant and proportionate. For example, if you are looking at a contract on a master services agreement or framework basis, where you might have multiple statements of work being called off at various times, have you got the balance right between what I might call contract-wide remedies and service line remedies that are specific to any given work package or statement of work. I think all of these things are really relevant considerations and discussions to have at the outset as you're beginning to chart the nature of the relationship and pulling together the documents. I think, Martin, sort of turning to you as a, as a dispute resolution focused lawyer, I, I assume that that is reflected a little bit in what you see as well. That's absolutely right, Jeremy. I think
0: what, what a lot of the disputes that we see boil down to relate to situations where parties don't necessarily have a good understanding at the outset of requirements, dependencies and roles and responsibilities. Certainly when I'm instructed on the disputes, the first part of the contracts I tend to look at is the requirements. They really are the real spine of a good contract and a good service or project outcome. If it's not clear what these are and who is accountable for delivery, it's very likely that you're just postponing pain to a future dispute. As such, it's quite important to invest the time up front to scope these out. I think an important part of that is to make sure the parties aren't rushing to the deal without stress testing requirements. Similarly, failure of the customer to get on top of dependencies can undermine future performance by the supplier. By the same measure, it's in the supplier's interest to ensure the customer confronts these points. As although it will depend on the terms of the contract in question, it may be difficult for a supplier to absolve itself of responsibility by pointing to the failures of its customer.
2: Yes, it's clearly very important for all sides to be clear as to what is going to be delivered and how. Um, I would add a few, a few comments. Um, if a supplier has made a pre-contractual statement about the nature of the service or a deliverable, or how that is going to be managed, and that is a key basis on which the customer enters into the contract, then the contract really needs to make that clear. Whilst there might be an ability to bring a claim for misrepresentation, where a supplier has made false statements about what it can deliver, which is the the Sky EDS type case that we saw about a decade ago, it's really quite rare that such claims are successful, and it is much easier if there is a contractual obligation that makes it clear. I think you've also got the opportunity when contracting to address upfront complexity and allocation of responsibility in supply chains, and tech services often have quite extensive supply chains, as do manufacturing or other just-in-time service and goods contracts. We often see contracts break down because lines of accountability between prime and subcontractors are not properly drawn or because the customer wasn't fully aware of what parts of the service implementation and delivery were allocated to different parts of the supply chain. From the customer's perspective, it's so important to get your due diligence right. At the very least, know who the Tier 1 and Tier 2 subcontractors are. You can then ensure that your contract includes, for example, right sort of flow down terms so that even if you don't have direct access to subcontractors, you have bound the prime contractor to certain subcontracting standards. And from the supplier's perspective, one of the biggest risks is getting caught in a squeeze where the customer tries to transfer risk to you that you, for whatever reason, cannot flow down to your supply chain. So you need to consider back-to-back contracting, indemnities, meaningful recourse provisions right down the supply chain. Another important point about subcontracts is that they're not just about price. Single point of failure risks can be really problematic if a smaller supplier is supplying a key piece of tech and there is a failure there. More generally, if the matter is a business transformation project, it will be important both from the supplier and the customer's perspective to ensure that they have the appropriate contractual arrangements with all other suppliers involved in the project. As part of that, and particularly from the supplier's perspective, it's essential that it is clarity as to who is doing what and who is responsible for ensuring that everyone carries out the work required of them. If not, there will almost certainly be gaps which emerge and which can derail the progress of the project.
1: And what about during the life of the contract? What are the strategies for success? I think it depends, Jeremy, a little on what you mean by success. Um,
0: Inevitably, there will be disagreements and problems that arise during the life of a contract. It's ultimately about relationships between people and managing risk and uncertainty. One of the issues we see quite a lot is that there is a stigma around disputes and that perhaps for understandable reasons, parties don't want to rock the boat. What that tends to mean is that quite often, parties wait too long to escalate or deal with disputes. That can be troubling for a number of reasons. First, it can impact the timing and quality of what's being delivered. It can lead to a situation where a customer doesn't get what it wants or a supplier doesn't get paid, or at least doesn't get paid within the expected timeframes. Second, it can affect around the ground and lead to the loss of key individuals and affect the team's ability to do other work on other initiatives. Third, it can affect party legal rights and prejudice its position should there be a dispute that can't be resolved.
2: And to echo that point, I think it's not realistic or at the very least rather optimistic to think that there won't be disputes or at least potential disputes in any substantial project. Providing IT services and particularly those with a business transformation element is challenging for both parties. Customers often don't know exactly what they want. Suppliers can certainly quite innocently underestimate the challenges of a particular project. And there are so many imponderables or changes in technology along the way that disagreements are really common. As an aside, certainly it's often the case that there is a disconnect within organisations both within customers and tech suppliers, between those on the commercial side who have a view of what the technology is and the problem it's intended to resolve, and those with a more detailed understanding of the actual capabilities of the technology. So an understanding gap can arise. And added to that, often for, for perfectly understandable reasons, it's just not possible to know completely and identify all of the issues that may impact a business Uh, over a period of time at the outset of such a project.
1: And something I've been talking to clients about recently is the benefits, if you will, of of letting go of the stigma of using the disputes clause. From what I have seen, a well-designed one can be really useful.
2: I think that's quite right. And One of the the least helpful behaviours we we see is parties ignoring a brewing dispute uh, or trying to work around it so that what's happening on the ground moves further and further away from what is in the contract. And that's really just allowing the steam to build up, rather than engaging whatever contractual mechanisms you might have to try and release it. However well-crafted a dispute resolution clause, or some other clause such as a relief provision, it won't be of any use if the parties are reluctant to call on it. And in particular in that context I mention relief clauses, Uh, Which are clauses which allow a supplier to send a notice seeking relief from their obligations where it's not able to meet some sort of KPI or some milestone because of matters outside its control, um, particularly where something has been held up by the actions of a a third party or, or sometimes the customer. And we often see there that suppliers are reluctant to rely on those provisions and actually call out a requirement for relief, particularly perhaps, where it might be tantamount to telling a customer that, that that it has failed to do something. And quite often, people who make those decisions might not even be aware of those clauses or, or what mechanisms they have in the contract. And,
1: and I think this starts to come back to that stigma issue or, or perhaps a lack of publicity or understanding around the benefits and, and the utility of dispute resolution clauses. I think it is right that it's it's often seen as a sign of failure or weakness or perhaps being a, a little too abrupt to turn to the dispute resolution clause. Uh, in some instances, it might even be seen as, as a nuclear option, whereas uh, from from what I see and, and from what we're talking about, I think used well, a dispute resolution clause or mechanism or procedure actually has the ability to diffuse tensions and guide parties towards uh, a satisfactory resolution. I mean, is is there something in the in the name or the drafting that can be done so that dispute resolution clauses are perhaps not just more useful in and of themselves, but there's a, a more of a willingness to turn to them when things might be going off track?
0: Uh, optics is clearly uh, important, Jeremy. Um, but by accepting that disputes may come up. Parties can be more sensible in setting up contractual and operational processes to deal with those issues. In that respect, there are a number of different ways that different types of disputes can be resolved. For complex and high value disputes, the Technology and Construction Court in the UK is very well suited to dealing with IT disputes, as judges with significant experience in this area. Similarly, some parties instead use arbitration. Uh, the major difference in many respects. Uh, at least with the UK dispute, see that for the most part, arbitrations are confidential and they tend to allow more procedural flexibility And for the parties to choose a panel, though it's not always easy to find arbitrators who understand both the technology elements and the law. However, there are many other types of dispute that can arise over the life of a contract, where a different approach might be preferable. And so you might want to include some specific contract-based procedures in the contract. That is particularly the case where the party need a decision to be made in relatively short order, by way example, expert determination is frequently used. That process can be bespoke to some extent, but the general premise is that an independent expert who is experienced in that area is asked to decide a dispute. The decision is ordinarily binding, save for very limited exceptions. We sometimes hear conceptually about the potential use of standby experts, essentially having a panel of experts appointed to the contract who are ready and able to deal with any disputes as they arise. The idea being that having them more involved in the whole engagement will mean they are better placed to form their decisions. However, it's not something we have seen commonly used, perhaps because of concerns over the cost or because it may be seen by parties as a host's fortune to have specified experts already in place. Another process which is suitable where you need a quick resolution to keep a project on track is adjudication. In this respect, uh, the Society for Computers and Laws Adjudication Scheme is designed specifically for technology disputes. The intention under that scheme is for a quick resolution, with the idea being a decision made by the adjudicator around three months after the complaint is actually made. The parties then have six months in which the decision is temporarily binding, during which they can elect to instead take the matter to litigation or arbitration as appropriate. Of course, if the parties envisage certain disputes being determined by either expert determination or adjudication, then that will need to be specified in the contract. Finally, I'd just add that many contracts in the IT sector have stepped dispute resolution mechanisms, including, for example, commercial escalation and mediation, often followed by expert determination or litigation or perhaps arbitration. That can be a really effective way of resolving some disputes at an early stage or at least streamlining any ongoing dispute.
1: Thanks, Martin. And I think this idea of stepped dispute resolution mechanisms ties right back into seeing dispute resolution as part of a wider relationship management or, or governance element of any any contract and particularly any complex tech transformation or sourcing programme. And I think in that sense, if you view dispute resolution as part of the governance toolkit, it can really help to move parties towards seeing it as a, a practical, functional, useful Part of a contract and not just something for the lawyers or, or sitting in the back of a dusty schedule. I think also it's it's really important to touch on the roles of, of good governance provisions and also change management provisions and, and, and change control provisions in contracts as tools or strategies that can be deployed to help steer parties away from danger zones. I think governance in particular sometimes gets overlooked as a, a bunch of soft uh, statements or or woolly statements of intent without really thinking about the day-to-day functional usefulness of a good governance regime. But really, used well, governance is your first stop towards identifying or triaging issues or problems. It's a great way to, to monitor current performance. And it can also be a horizon scanner of future icebergs. So I would endorse any position in a tech contract where governance forums are set up in a way that works well for customers and for suppliers and which encourages that open and and frank exchange of of where things are and where things are headed. Likewise, change management can be a, a critical process for responding to the inevitable changes that crop up in tech contexts. And again, used well and in combination with governance can help strengthen the fences that sit at the top of these cliffs.
2: Thank you, Jeremy. That concludes part two of Herbert smith Freehills Hill's Evolution or Revolution podcast. Join us in part three, where we'll discuss what happens where it has not been possible to avoid a dispute, including some of the practical and legal issues that the parties will need to consider.